Our goal at the Sleepy Bookshelf is to help the world get better sleep. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners and share the gift of a good night's rest. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being here tonight. This evening we're returning to Anne of Avonlea, But before that, let's take a moment as usual to get ready for sleep. Lying or sitting still, make sure all your arms and legs are uncrossed and your posture is open. Take a few deep breaths in through your nose and out through your mouth. Now imagine a warm light gently floating in front of your face. It can be any color or size that you choose. How does this light make you feel? Perhaps happy or calm or peaceful? With your next breath, in and out, imagine a little bit of this light traveling into your body, illuminating all the muscles in your face and allowing them to relax. Your eyebrows are softening, your jaw is loosening, your tongue is releasing from the roof of your mouth. As you breathe deeper, that warm light slowly fills up your whole body. You sense it working its way from your neck all the way down to your fingers and then further from your hips down to your toes, releasing all the tension as it goes. As you lie, breathing steadily, you feel all smoothed out and light. Last time you were here, a newcomer arrived in Avonlea who turned out to be Mr. Harrison's wife. The village was astonished, assuming he was a bachelor. The small, pretty woman was named Emily. They had argued some months before, and she had left him finally on account of Ginger, his rude parrot. Emily was then glad to learn of Ginger's passing in the storm that had just come over. She struck up an immediate friendship with Mrs. Lynde, thereby solidifying her place in the Avonlea community. Shortly after, 
Mrs. Lynn's husband, Thomas, finally passed away after battling a long-term illness. Marilla, feeling her own grief for her brother all over again, knew Rachel would need support. Gilbert Blythe was due to go to college soon, which had always been an ambition of Anne's that had been put on the back burner due to Marilla's eyesight being so unstable and now the matter of the twins. But tonight, we pick back up as Marilla is suggesting Anne revisit the idea of college. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Avonlea. Chapter 26 Around the Bend Continued I won't be alone with them. That's what I meant to discuss with you. I had a long talk with Rachel tonight, Dan. She's feeling dreadful bad over a good many things. She's not left very well off. Seems they mortgaged the farm eight years ago to give the youngest boy a start when he went west and they've never been able to pay much more than the interest since. And then, of course, Thomas's illness has cost a good deal, one way or another. The farm will have to be sold. Rachel thinks there'll be hardly anything left after the bills are settled. She says she'll have to go and live with Eliza and it's breaking her heart to think of leaving Avonlea. A woman of her age doesn't make new friends and interests easy, and Dan, as she talked about it, the thought came to me that I would ask her to come and live with me. But I thought I could talk it over with you first before I said anything to her. If I had Rachel living with me, you could go to college. How do you feel about it? I feel as if somebody had handed me the moon and I didn't know exactly what to do with it said Anne dazedly but as for asking Mrs. Lynn to come here that is for you to decide Marilla what do you think are you sure you would like it Mrs. Lynde is a good woman and a kind neighbour but 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 she's got her faults, you mean to say. Well, she has, of course. But I think I'd rather put up with far worse faults than see Rachel go away from Avonlea. I'd miss her terrible. She's the only close friend I've got here, and I'd be lost without her. We've been neighbours for 45 years, and we've never had a quarrel. Though we came rather near it that time you flew at Mrs. Rachel for calling you homely and redhead. Do you remember, Anne? I should think I do, said Anne ruefully. People don't forget things like that. How I hated poor Mrs. Rachel at that moment. And then that apology you made to her. Well, you were a handful in all conscience, Anne. I did feel so puzzled and bewildered how to manage you. Matthew understood you better. Matthew understood everything said Anne softly as she always spoke of him 
Well, I think it could be managed so that Rachel and I wouldn't clash at all. It always seemed to me the reason two women can't get along in one house is that they try to share the same kitchen and get in each other's way. Now, if Rachel came here, she could have the north gable for her bedroom and the spare room for a kitchen as well as not. For we don't really need a spare room at all. She could put her stove there and what furniture she wanted to keep. Be real comfortable and independent. She'll have enough to live on, of course. Her children would see to that, so all I'd be giving her would be house room. Yes, Anne. As far as I'm concerned, I'd like it. Then ask her, said Anne promptly. I'd be very sorry myself to see Mrs. Rachel go away. And if she comes, continued Marilla, you can go to college as well as not. She'll be company for me and she'll do for the twins what I can't do. So there's no reason in the world why you shouldn't go. Anne had a long meditation at her window that night. Joy and regret struggled together in her heart. She had come at last, suddenly and unexpectedly, to the bend in the road, and college was around it, with a hundred rainbow hopes and visions. But Anne realized as well, when she rounded that curve, she must leave many sweet things behind. All the little simple duties and interests which had grown so dear to her in the last two years, and which she had glorified into beauty and delight by the enthusiasm she had put into them. She must give up her school, and she loved every one of her pupils, even the stupid and naughty ones. The mere thought of Paul Irving made her wonder if Redmond was such a name to conjure with after all. I've put out a lot of little roots these two years, Anne told the moon. And when I'm pulled up, they're going to hurt a great deal. But it is best to go, I think. And as Marilla says, there's no good reason why I shouldn't. I must get out all my ambitions and dust them. Anne sent in her resignation the next day. And Mrs. Rachel, after a heart-to-heart talk with Marilla gratefully accepted the offer of a home at Green Gables. She elected to remain in her own house for the summer, however. The farm was not to be sold until the fall, and there were many arrangements to be made. I certainly never thought of living as far off the road as Green Gables, sighed Mrs. Rachel to herself. But really... Green Gables doesn't seem as out of the world as it used to. Anne has lots of company, and the twins make it real lively. And anyhow, I'd rather live at the bottom of a well than leave Avonlea. These two decisions, being noised abroad, speedily ousted the arrival of Mrs. Harrison in popular gossip. Sage heads were shaken over Marilla Cuthbert's rash step in asking Mrs. Rachel to live with her. Some opined that they wouldn't get on together. They were both too fond of their own way, 
and many doleful predictions were made, none of which disturbed the parties in question at all. They had come to a clear and distinct understanding of the respective duties and rights of their new arrangements and meant to abide by them. I won't meddle with you nor you with me, Mrs. Rachel had said decidedly. And as for the twins, I'll be glad to do all I can for them, but I won't undertake to answer Davy's questions, that's what. I'm not an encyclopedia, neither am I a Philadelphia lawyer. You'll miss Anne for that. Sometimes Anne's answers were about as queer as Davy's questions, said Marilla dryly. The twins will miss her, no mistake but her future can't be sacrificed to Davy's thirst for information. When he asks questions I can't answer, I'll just tell him children should be seen and not heard. That's how I was brought up, and I don't know but what it was just as good a way as all these newfangled notions for training children. Well, Anne's methods seem to have worked fairly well with Davy, said Mrs. Lynde smilingly. He's a reformed character, that's what. He isn't a bad little soul, conceded Marilla. Never expected to get as fond of those children as I have. Davy gets round you somehow. Dora is a lovely child, although she's kind of, uh, well, kind of monotonous, exactly, supplied Mrs. Rachel. Like a book where every page is the same, that's what. Dora will make a good, reliable woman, but she'll never set the pond on fire. Well, that sort of folks are comfortable to have around, even if they're not as interesting as the other kind. Gilbert Blythe was probably the only person to whom the news of Anne's resignation brought unmixed pleasure. Her pupils looked upon it as a sheer catastrophe. Annetta Bell had hysterics when she went home. Anthony Pye fought two pitched and unprovoked battles with other boys by way of relieving his feelings. Barbara Shaw cried all night. Paul Irving defiantly told his grandmother that she needn't expect him to eat any porridge for a week. I can't do it, Grandma, he said. I don't know, really, if I can eat anything. I feel as if there were a dreadful lump in my throat. I'd have cried coming home from school if Jake Donnell hadn't been watching me. I believe I will cry after I go to bed. It won't show on my eyes tomorrow, would it? And it would be such a relief. But anyway, I can't eat porridge. I'm going to need all my strength of mind to bear up against this grandma, and I won't have any left to grapple with porridge. Oh, grandma, I don't know what I'll do when my beautiful teacher goes away. Milty Balter says he bets Jane Andrews will get the school. I suppose Miss Andrews is very nice, but I know she won't understand things like Miss Shirley. Diana also took a very pessimistic view of affairs. It'll be horribly lonesome here next winter, 
she mourned one twilight when the moonlight was raining airy silver through the cherry boughs and filling the east gable with a soft, dreamlike radiance in which the two girls sat and talked. Anne on her low rocker by the window, Diana sitting on the bed. You and Gilbert will be gone, and the Allens too. They're going to call Mr. Allen to Charlottetown, and of course he'll accept. It's too mean. We'll be vacant all winter, I suppose. I have to listen to a long string of candidates, but half of them won't be any good. I hope they won't call Mr. Baxter from East Grafton here anyhow, said Anne decidedly. He wants the call, but he does preach such gloomy sermons. Mr. Bell said he's a minister of the old school. Mrs. Lynde said there's nothing whatever the matter with him but indigestion. His wife isn't a very good cook, it seems. And Mrs. Lynde says that when a man has to eat sour bread for two weeks out of three, his theology is bound to get a kink in it somewhere. Mrs. Allen feels very badly about going away. She says everybody has been so kind to her since she came here as a bride that she feels as if she were leaving lifelong friends. And then there's the baby's grave, you know. She says she doesn't see how she can go away and leave that. Such a little mite of a thing, and only three months old. She says she's afraid it will miss its mother, although she knows better and wouldn't say so to Mr. Allen for anything. She says she has slipped through the birch grove path of the manse nearly every night to the graveyard and sung a little lullaby to it. She told me all about it last evening when I was going to put up some of those early wild roses on Matthew's grave. I promised her that as long as I was in Avonlea, I would put flowers on the baby's grave. And when I was away, I felt sure that that I would do it, supplied Diana heartily. Of course I will. And I'll put them on Matthew's grave too. For your sake, Anne. Thank you. I meant to ask you if you would, and on little Hester Gray's too. Please don't forget hers. Do you know, I've thought and dreamed so much about little Hester Gray that she has become strangely real to me. I think of her back there in her little garden, in that cool, still green corner, and I have a fancy that I could steal back there some spring evening just at the magic time twixt light and dark, and tiptoe so softly up the beech hill that my footsteps could not frighten her. I'd find the garden just as it used to be, more sweet with June lilies and early roses, the tiny house beyond it all hung with vines, and little Hester Gray would be there with her soft eyes and the wind ruffling her dark hair, wandering about, putting her fingertips under the chins of the lilies and whispering secrets with the roses. And I would go forward, oh, so softly, and hold out my hands and say to her, Little Hester Grey, won't you let me be your playmate, for I love the roses too. 
and we would sit down on the old bench, talk a little and dream a little, just be beautifully silent together. And then the moon would rise and I would look around me and there would be no Hester Gray and no little vine-hung house, no roses, only an old waste garden starred with June lilies amid the grass and the wind sighing oh, so sorrowfully in the cherry trees. And I would not know whether it had been real or if I had just imagined it all. Diana crawled up and got her back against the headboard of the bed. When your companion of twilight hour said such spooky things, it was just as well not to be able to fancy there was anything behind you. I'm afraid the Improvement Society will go down when you and Gilbert are both gone, she remarked dolefully. Not a bit of fear of it, said Anne briskly coming back from dreamland to the affairs of practical life. It's too firmly established for that, especially since the older people are becoming so enthusiastic about it. Look what they're doing this summer for their lawns and lanes. Besides, I'll be watching for hints at Redmond, and I'll write a paper for it next winter and send it over. Don't take such a gloomy view of things, Diana. And don't grudge me my little hour of gladness and jubilation now. Later on, when I have to go away, I'll feel anything but glad. It's all right for you to be glad. You're going to college, and you'll have a jolly time and make heaps of lovely new friends. I hope I shall make new friends, said Anne thoughtfully. Possibilities of making new friends help to make life very fascinating. But no matter how many friends I make, they'll never be as dear to me as the old ones, especially a certain girl with black eyes and dimples. Can you guess who she is, Diana? There'll be so many clever girls at Redmond, sighed Diana. And I'm only a stupid little country girl who says, I seem sometimes though I really know better when I stop to think. And of course, these past two years have been really too pleasant to last. I know somebody who is glad you're going to Redmond anyhow, Anne. I'm going to ask you a question. A serious question. Don't be vexed and do answer seriously. Do you care anything for Gilbert? Ever so much, as a friend... And not a bit in the way you mean, said Anne, calmly and decidedly. She also thought she was speaking sincerely. Diana sighed. She wished somehow that Anne had answered differently. Don't you ever mean to be married, Anne? Perhaps. Someday, when I meet the right one, said Anne smiling dreamily up at the moonlight. But how can you be sure when you do meet the right one? persisted Diana. Oh, I should know him. Something would tell me. You know what my ideal is, Diana. But people's ideals change sometimes. Mine won't. And I couldn't care for 
any man who didn't fulfill it. What if you never meet him? Then I shall die an old maid, was the cheerful response. I dare say it isn't the hardest death by any means. Oh, I suppose the dying would be easy enough. It's the living an old maid I shouldn't like, said Diana, with no intention of being humorous. Although I wouldn't mind being an old maid very much if I could be one like Miss Lavender. But I never could be. When I'm 45, I'll be horribly fat, and while there might be some romance about a thin old maid, there couldn't possibly be any about a fat one. Oh, mind you, Nelson Atkins proposed to Ruby Gillis three weeks ago. Ruby told me all about it. She said she never had any intention of taking him, because anyone who married him would have to go in with the old folks. But Ruby says that he made such a perfectly beautiful and romantic proposal that it simply swept her off her feet. But she didn't want to do anything rash, so she asked for a week to consider. And two days later, she was at a meeting of the sewing circle at his mother's house, and there was a book called The Complete Guide to Etiquette lying on the parlour table. Ruby said she simply couldn't describe her feelings when in a section of it headed The Deportment of Courtship and Marriage, she found the very proposal Nelson had made, word for word. She went home and wrote him a perfectly scathing refusal, and she says his father and mother have taken turns watching him ever since for fear he'll drown himself in the river. But Ruby says they needn't be afraid, for in the deportment of courtship and marriage, it told how a rejected lover should behave, and there's nothing about drowning in that. And she says Wilbur Blair is literally pining away for her. She's perfectly helpless in the matter. Anne made an impatient movement. I hate to say it, Seems so disloyal, but, well, I don't like Ruby Gillis now. I liked her when we went to school and Queen's together, though not so well as you and Jane, of course. But this last year at Carmody, she seems so different. I know, nodded Diana. It's the Gillis coming out in her. She can't help it. Mrs. Lynn says that if ever a Gillis girl thought about anything but the boys, she never showed it in her walk and conversation. She talks about nothing but boys and what compliments they pay her and how crazy they all are about her at Carmody. And the strange thing is, they are, too. Diana admitted this somewhat resentfully. Last night when I saw her at Mr. Blair's store, she whispered to me that she'd just made a new mash. I wouldn't ask her who it was, because I knew she was dying to be asked. Well, it's what Ruby always wanted, I suppose. You remember, even when she was little, she always said she meant to have dozens of bows when she grew up, and have the very gayest time she could before she settled down. She's so different from Jane, isn't she? Jane is such a nice sensible, ladylike girl. Dear old Jane is a jewel, agreed Anne. But 
she added, leaning forward to bestow a tender pat on the plump, dimpled little hand hanging over her pillow. There's nobody like my own Diana, after all. Do you remember that evening we first met Diana and swore eternal friendship in your garden? We've kept that oath, I think. We've never had a quarrel, nor even a coolness. I shall never forget the thrill that went over me the day you told me you loved me. I had such a lonely, starved heart all through my childhood. I'm just beginning to realise how starved and lonely it really was. Nobody cared anything for me, or wanted to be bothered with me. I should have been miserable if it hadn't been for that strange little dream life of mine, wherein I imagined all the friends and love I craved. But when I came to Green Gables, everything was changed. And then I met you. I don't know what your friendship meant to me. I want to thank you, here and now, dear, for the warm and true affection you've always given me. And always, always will, sobbed Diana. I shall never love anybody, any girl, half as well as I love you. And if I ever do marry and have a little girl of my own, I'm going to name her Anne. Chapter 27 An Afternoon at the Stone House Where are you going all dressed up, Anne? Davy wanted to know. You look bully in that dress. Anne had just come down to dinner in a new dress of pale green muslin, the first colour she had worn since Matthew's death. It became her perfectly, bringing out all the delicate, flower-like tints of her face and the gloss and burnish of her hair. Davy, how many times have I told you that you mustn't use that word? She rebuked. I'm going to Echo Lodge. Take me with you, entreated Davy. I would if I were driving, but I'm going to walk. It's too far for your eight-year-old legs. Besides, Paul is going with me and I fear you don't enjoy yourself in his company. Oh, I like Paul lots better than I did, said Davy beginning to make fearful inroads into his pudding. Since I've got pretty good myself, I don't mind his being much gooder so much. If I can keep on, I'll catch up with him someday, both in my legs and goodness. Besides, Paul is real nice to us second primer boys in school. He won't let the other big boys meddle with us and shows us lots of games. How came Paul to fall into the brook at noon hour yesterday? Asked Anne. I met him on the playground, such a dripping figure that I sent him promptly home for clothes without waiting to find out what had happened. Well, it was partly an accident, explained Davy. He stuck his head in on purpose, but the rest of him fell in accidentally. We was all down at the brook, and Prilly Rogerson got mad at Paul about something. She's awful mean and horrid anyway, if she is pretty, and said that his grandmother put his hair up in curl rags every night. Now, Paul wouldn't have minded what she said, I guess, 
But Gracie Andrews laughed and Paul got awful red because Gracie's his girl, you know. He's clean gone on her, brings her flowers and carries her books as far as the shore road. He got as red as a beet and said his grandmother didn't do any such thing and his hair was born curly. Then he laid down on the bank, stuck his head right into the spring to show them. It wasn't the spring we drink out of, seeing a horrified look on Marilla's face. It was the little one lower down. The bank's awful slippy and Paul went right in. I tell you, made such a bully splash. Oh, Anne, Anne, I didn't mean to say that. It just slipped out before I thought. He made a splendid splash. But he looked so funny when he crawled out, all wet and muddy. The girls laughed more than ever. But Gracie didn't laugh. She looked sorry. Gracie's a nice girl, but she's got a snub nose. When I get big enough to have a girl, I won't have one with a snub nose. I'll pick one with a pretty nose. Like yours, Anne. A boy who makes a mess of syrup all over his face when he is eating his pudding will never get a girl to look at him, said Marilla severely. But I'll wash my face before I go courting, protested Davy, trying to improve matters by rubbing the back of his hand over the smears. And I'll wash behind my ears too, without being told. I remembered this morning, Marilla. I don't forget half as often as I did, but, and Davy sighed, there's so many corners about a fellow, it's awful hard to remember them all. Why, if I can't go to Miss Lavender's, I'll go over and see Mr. Harrison. Mrs. Harrison's an awful nice woman, I tell you. She keeps a jar of cookies in her pantry of purpose for the little boys and she always gives me the scrapings out of a pan she's mixed up a plum cake in. Good many plum sticks to the side, you see. Mr. Harrison was always a nice man, but he's twice as nice since he got married over again. I guess getting married makes folks nicer. Why don't you get married, Marilla? I want to know. Marilla's state of single blessedness had never been a sore point with her, So she answered amiably with an exchange of significant looks with Anne that she supposed it was because nobody would have her. But maybe you've never asked anybody to have you, protested Davy. Oh, Davy, said Dora primly, shocked into speaking without being spoken to. It's the men that have to do the asking. I don't know why they always have to do it grumbled Davy. Seems to me everything's put on the men in this world. Can I have some more pudding, Marilla? You've had as much as was good for you, said Marilla, but she gave him a moderate second helping. I wish people could live on pudding. Why can't they, Marilla? I want to know. Because they'd soon get tired of it. I'd like to try that for myself said sceptical Davy. But I guess it's better to have put it only on fish and company days than none at all. They never had any at Milty Borders. Milty says when company comes, his mother gives them cheese and cuts it herself. 
one little bit apiece and won over for manners. If Milty Bolter talks like that about his mother, at least you needn't repeat it, said Marilla severely. Bless my soul. Davy had picked this expression up from Mr. Harrison and used it with great gusto. Milty meant it as a compliment. He's awful proud of his mother, because folks say she could scratch a living on a rock. I suppose those pesky hens are in my pansy bed again, said Marilla, rising and going out hurriedly. The slandered hens were nowhere near the pansy bed, and Marilla did not even glance at it. Instead, she sat down on the cellar hatch and laughed until she was ashamed of herself. When Anne and Paul reached the stone house that afternoon, they found Miss Lavender and Charlotte the Fourth in the garden, weeding, raking, clipping and trimming as if for dear life. Miss Lavender herself, all gay and sweet in the frills and laces she loved, dropped her shears and ran joyously to meet her guests, while Charlotte the Fourth grinned cheerfully. Welcome, Anne. I thought you'd come today. You belong to the afternoon, so it brought you. Things that belong together are sure to come together. What a lot of trouble that would save some people if they only knew it. But they don't, and so they waste beautiful energy moving heaven and earth to bring things together that don't belong. And you, Paul, why you've grown. You're half a head taller than when you were here before. Yes, I've begun to grow like pigweed in the night, as Mrs. Lynn says, said Paul in frank delight over the fact. Grandma says it's the porridge taking effect at last. Perhaps it is. Goodness knows, Paul sighed deeply. I've eaten enough to make anyone grow. I do hope now that I've begun, I'll keep on till I'm as tall as father. He's six feet, you know, Miss Lavender. Yes, Miss Lavender did know. The flush on her pretty cheeks deepened a little. She took Paul's hand on one side and Anne's on the other and walked to the house in silence. Is it a good day for the echoes, Miss Lavender? queried Paul anxiously. The day of his first visit had been too windy for echoes, and Paul had been much disappointed. Yes, it's just the best kind of day, answered Miss Lavender, rousing herself from her reverie. But first, you're all going to have something to eat. I know you two folks didn't walk all the way back here through those beech woods without getting hungry, and Charlotte the Fourth and I can eat at any hour of the day. We have such obliging appetites. So we'll just make a raid on the pantry. Fortunately, it's lovely and full. I had a presentiment that I was going to have company today, and Charlotte the Fourth and I prepared. I think you are one of the people who always have nice things in their pantry, declared Paul. Grandma's like that too but she doesn't approve of snacks between meals. I wonder, he added, 
meditatively. I ought to eat them away from home when I know she doesn't approve. Oh, I don't think that she would disapprove after you had a long walk. That makes a difference, said Miss Lavender, exchanging amused glances with Anne over Paul's brown curls. I suppose that snacks are extremely unwholesome. That's why we have them so often here at Echo Lodge. We, Charlotte the Fourth and I, live in defiance of every known law of diet. We eat all sorts of indigestible things whenever we happen to think of it, by day or night, and we flourish like green bay trees. We are always intending to reform when we read any article in a paper warning us against something we like. We cut it out and pin it up on the kitchen wall so that we'll remember it. But we never can, somehow, until after we've gone and eaten that very thing. Nothing has ever killed us yet. But Charlotte the Fourth has been known to have bad dreams after we had eaten doughnuts and mince pie and fruitcake before we went to bed. Grandma lets me have a glass of milk and a slice of bread and butter before I go to bed. And on Sunday nights she puts jam on the bread, said Paul. So I'm always glad when it's Sunday night, for more reasons than one. Sunday is a very long day on the shore road. Grandma says all too short for her, and that father never found Sundays tiresome when he was a little boy. It wouldn't seem so long if I could talk to my rock people, but I never do that because Grandma doesn't approve of it on Sundays. I think a good deal, so I'm afraid my thoughts are worldly. Grandma says we should never think anything but religious thoughts on Sundays. But TJ said once that every really beautiful thought was religious, no matter what it was about or what day we thought it on. But I feel sure Grandma thinks that sermons and Sunday school lessons are the only things you can think truly religious thoughts about. And when it comes to a difference of opinion between Grandma and teacher, I don't know what to do. In my heart... Paul laid his hand on his breast and raised very serious blue eyes to Miss Lavender's immediately sympathetic face. I agree with teacher. But then, you see, Grandma has brought father up her way and made a brilliant success of him. And teacher has never brought anybody up yet, though she's helping with Davy and Dora. But you can't tell how they'll turn out till they're grown up. So sometimes I feel as if it might be safer to go by Grandma's opinions. I think it would, agreed Anne solemnly. Anyway, I dare say that if your Grandma and I both got down to what we really do mean, under our different ways of expressing it, we'd find out we both meant much the same thing. You'd better go by her way of expressing it, since it's been the result of experience. We'll have to wait until we see how the twins do turn out before we can be sure that my way is equally good. <laughs>